0: The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network, Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Nobody ever said impeachment is easy. This is Thursday, March 14th, 2019. Thank you for supporting Independent News by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Breaking news as this program was being released, the House this morning passed a resolution urging the Justice Department to make special counsel Robert Mueller's full report public. The vote was 420 to 0. Impeachment is so divisive to the country. Unless there's something so compelling and overwhelming and bipartisan, I don't think we should go down that path because it divides the country and he's just not worth it. Those were the words this week from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that rocked Democrats who've spent months hoping for that very thing, the impeachment of Donald Trump. And now this Pelosi person was dumping cold water on the idea. Unfortunately, most people didn't hear all of her words in that quote. They heard impeachment, divisive, partisan. I don't think we should go down that path. Not worth it. They did not hear unless there's something so compelling and overwhelming. What many of us also did not hear, because Pelosi didn't say it, is that that overwhelming something is what at least six House committees are investigating, with her blessing, as they conduct the oversight they are constitutionally obligated to do. It could be the evidence gathered by those committees, along with prosecutions by the special counsel and other state and federal prosecutors, that provide the overwhelming evidence that would persuade Republicans in the Senate to join Democrats in a complete impeachment process. Because without a conviction in the Senate, Trump cannot and will not be removed from office. Pelosi knows no impeachment is better than a failed impeachment and better to lift up Americans with health care and lower drug prices and bigger paychecks than to tear down Trump. She may feel it's better to keep Democrats fired up and motivated to vote in the 2020 election, to remove Trump and the Republicans who enable him without offending crucial moderate voters and independents who've swung away from Trump and his Republicans. Trump has already thanked Pelosi for saying no impeachment. And Pelosi clearly knows that impeachment at this particular moment would heap more division upon a country that may not be able to withstand further division. She cites the words of Abraham Lincoln in her newsmaking interview with the Washington Post. Public sentiment is everything. With public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed the public opinion polls have tilted toward impeachment but it is now up to the committees of nancy pelosi's house of representatives special counsel robert Mueller, and other federal and state prosecutors to tilt public opinion more one way or another it appears trump campaign boss paul manafort's going to prison He is the first campaign manager in the history of sitting presidents to be sent to prison and the first presidential campaign manager to serve time since Watergate. Last week, in a verdict that shocked and surprised many, Manafort was sentenced to less than four years in prison for his bank and tax fraud. It was a stunning reminder of white privilege, this disparity of sentences between a mature white male who stole tens of millions of dollars from taxpayers and a young black male convicted of a nonviolent drug offense. But it wasn't over for Paul Manafort. And by the way, it still isn't. Yesterday was a very bad day for the ex campaign chair. First, Judge Amy Berman Jackson sentenced Manafort to an additional three and a half years for lying to Robert Mueller's prosecutors, bringing Manafort's total federal prison sentence to nearly seven and a half years to begin as he's about to turn 70. To the end, Manafort angled for a pardon from Trump. Through his lawyers, Manafort had claimed no collusion even though collusion was never part of either Manafort's cases. Not so far, anyway. The subject had never come up, except from the mouths of Manafort's lawyers. This was a message to a sympathetic president. Judge Jackson pointed out that the claim was irrelevant and that no such thing had been proven, this collusion, no collusion, especially since Manafort had lied so much about it. She seemed to be addressing Trump when she said, although he is not public enemy number one, he is not innocent. Trump had earlier tweeted that Manafort was being treated like public enemy number one. And the bad news for Paul Manafort did not stop coming after that sentence. Within minutes of that second federal Manafort sentencing, the district attorney in Manhattan hit the Trump campaign chairman with 16 criminal charges. The charges involved mortgage fraud and more than a dozen other state felonies. If convicted on any of this, Manafort is going to prison. And although a presidential pardon can spare him that seven and a half years in a federal pen, it cannot and will not spare him from a state sentence in a much less comfortable state prison. Quoting Manhattan D.A. Cyrus Vance Jr., no one is above the law in New York. Vance began the investigation last year with a look at a couple of bank loans to Manafort. Trump's campaign boss appears headed for prison, and ultimately, there's nothing Trump can do to stop it. The New York Attorney General's office, meanwhile, has just issued subpoenas this week to a couple of Manhattan banks for their records on several Trump organization projects following Michael Cohen's testimony that Trump inflated his assets when applying for bank loans. Also yesterday, former Acting Attorney General Matt Whitaker admitted in closed-door testimony to the House Judiciary Committee that Trump had discussed with him the New York federal prosecutor's case against Michael Cohen that Trump had been part of discussions about removing a couple of U.S. attorneys and that Trump had asked Whitaker if someone other than the New York U.S. attorney could handle the Cohen case that had named Trump as individual number one. It appears Trump has once again interfered with the pursuit of justice for his own activities. You have arrived on a busy week. Yesterday it was the sentencing of Manafort and the state charges that followed. We're expecting a status report any time on Mike Flynn. When Flynn was in court in December for sentencing, the judge advised him against it considering the seriousness of his crimes and the additional help he might be able to give investigators that might make Flynn's sentence less harsh. Today, we and Roger Stone will learn the date of his upcoming trial for lying and witness tampering. We may also learn he's headed for a bit of jail for violating the judge's gag order. On Friday, we'll hear a report on the status of Rick Gates' cooperation with the Mueller investigation. Gates, former deputy campaign manager, testified against Manafort. And because Gates knows a lot about foreign influence curried through the Trump inauguration, Gates' sentencing is likely to be delayed again. Monday, meanwhile, is the deadline for 81 people and entities who are expected to have turned over requests for documents to the House Oversight Committee. The parties receiving those requests include the Trump White House, which says it will refuse to supply the documents, which may lead to a subpoena at a court fight. The Oversight Committee asked for nothing that hadn't already been supplied by the White House to Robert Mueller's investigators. Sleep well, Michael Cohen. That's the advice Cohen got from a Trump lawyer in April of last year that reminded him he had, quote, friends in high places. To Cohen, that seemed like an offer to pardon him if he would be like Manafort and Roger Stone and refuse to testify against the president. It seems that way to Cohen's current lawyer as well and that email has now been provided to congressional investigators. Sleep well tonight, Robert Costello wrote. You have friends in high places. Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani says the email wasn't about a pardon. He says attorney Robert Costello was just trying to put Cohen's mind at ease when Cohen thought the president was mad at him. Costello and Giuliani clearly wanted to keep Cohen on the inside. The plan was for Giuliani's friend Bob Costello to represent Michael Cohen. Costello wrote to Cohen, Rudy said the communication channel must be maintained. He called it crucial and noted how reassured they were they had someone like me in this role. Costello is now waiting to hear from the House Intelligence Committee, which is investigating possible offers of presidential pardons. Even with all the focus this week on Paul Manafort, Mike Flynn, Roger Stone, Rick Gates, and Michael Cohen, the eminent conclusion of the Mueller investigation, Donald Trump's relationship with Vladimir Putin, has not been forgotten. Since taking his oath, the president has met privately with the Russian leader five times. Three of the meetings involved just the two of them, no note-takers, no interpreters, all against U.S. protocol. On the two occasions the translators were present, their notes were confiscated and they were ordered not to repeat anything they'd just heard. What few notes may exist have reportedly not even been seen by top White House advisors. Now Democrats in Congress want to see whatever the White House has about Trump's meetings with Putin, those confiscated notes, and any other notes or memos about any of those five secretive meetings. Among other things, they want to know if the supposedly defunct Trump Tower Moscow project was discussed, or anything else that could compromise the President of the United States. Since taking his oath, the Commander-in-Chief has done nothing to respond to the Russian election attack, including a failure to step up this nation's cyber abilities. Trump has resisted sanctions against Russia and praised Putin repeatedly. The Trump White House has leaked like a sieve from day one, This past week, one of those leaks exposed documents the White House did not want House investigators to see. The documents surround the granting of top security clearances to first daughter Ivanka Trump and her husband Jared Kushner. Those clearances were granted to the president's daughter and son-in-law over the firm objections of the CIA and other intelligence officials who called Jared's exposure a threat to security. They worry that Jared has withheld so much on his security applications, revised again and again to add that which he had repeatedly omitted. The House Oversight Committee has requested the documents surrounding these clearances, including the protest memo was filed by then-White House Counsel Don McGahn and then-White House Chief of Staff John Kelly. It was Kelly who was reportedly ordered by the President to grant those clearances, despite White House claims to the contrary. The White House has rejected the committee's request for these documents, and that normally would have the potential to lead to a court fight over a subpoena, but probably not in this case, since the documents the committee is requesting have actually been in the committee's hands since early last month, according to Axios. The documents were handed to the committee by White House personnel who are as concerned as our intelligence community about how and why Jared and Ivanka Got top clearance. It was a White House leak that revealed the memos the White House did not want House investigators to see. So concerned are these White House personnel, they have leaked classified documents to the House. Foreign influence appears to be the hallmark of the Trump administration. It certainly reared its head during the campaign and during the transition, but it even appeared at the president's inauguration, which is currently under investigation along with every other aspect of Trump's public life. The Trump inaugural committee raised an inexplicable record amount of money for the celebration, $107 million, and state and federal investigators have now subpoenaed that donor data. The Guardian reports that tens of thousands of dollars came from shell companies created to hide the money's foreign sources. The Guardian has also tracked down three of those sources through those shell companies, each donating $25,000 to the inaugural committee. At least one of them is legally prohibited from making a political donation. At least one of the donations is illegal. The laws designed to protect the integrity of our elections and the security of our nation prohibit non resident foreigners from making political donations, and that includes inaugurations. One of the donors tracked down by The Guardian was an Indian financier based in London who does not appear to be either a citizen or resident of the United States. Last year, a D.C. lobbyist admitted he had illegally funneled $50,000 to the Trump campaign from a Ukrainian oligarch who was a business partner of Paul Manafort. Robert Mueller's investigators have been looking into all of this and likely know much more than we do. The phone giant T-Mobile has come clean about its dealings with the Trump Organization while it was trying to get the Trump Justice Department and the FCC to approve its merger with Sprint. In a letter, T-Mobile responded to questions about that from Senator Elizabeth Warren and others. In that letter, T-Mobile admitted it has spent nearly $200,000 at the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C. since it announced the merger. In fact, the day after that announcement, nine of T-Mobile's top executives had reservations at Trump's hotel. The Washington Post also got hold of internal documents from the hotel that show T-Mobile executives had reserved 52 nights there since the merger was announced. Rooms, meeting rooms, catering. Since the sitting president still owns that hotel and still profits from it, T-Mobile's patronage of it appears to be lining Trump's pockets to grease the wheels at the Justice Department and the FCC, for the merger it wants. The Trump administration continues to resist the AT&T Time Warner merger since Time Warner owns the CNN that Trump loves to hate. Congressional Democrats are investigating the T-Mobile relationship with Trump. The grand jury investigating WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange hit a dead end when it asked Chelsea Manning to testify. The former Army intelligence analyst serves seven years in prison for giving classified documents to WikiLeaks, the rest of her 35-year sentence commuted by President Obama. Insisting she was willing to explain things publicly, Manning refused to testify for the closed-door grand jury. She offered up transcripts of her military trial, said she'd tell prosecutors everything they want to know. In public... These secret proceedings tend to favor the government, she said, as she was sent to jail for contempt of court. Chelsea Manning will remain in the Arlington County, Virginia jail until she agrees to testify for the grand jury or until that particular grand jury concludes its work without her. Trump's convinced it was immigration and the wall that got him elected. In 2016, he ran on a promise to build that wall with Mexico's money. Now that it hasn't been built, he's promising to finish it in time for the 2020 election. He's determined to build it just as Democrats and some Republicans are determined that it not be built. That standoff could lead to another government shutdown. They have until the end of September to work this out. In his official budget proposal, Trump has set aside $8.6 billion to build 722 miles of wall. That's about half the wall. He plans to pay for the rest with money for the military construction budget, which he appropriated in his border emergency declaration. Total cost of the wall? Nearly $17 billion, more than triple what he had demanded headed into December's shutdown. Trump's also proposing a $33 billion increase in military spending. And he's proposing that we pay for these expenditures with cuts to the government's social safety net programs, hitting the elderly and the disabled the hardest. Trump's proposal would cut over a trillion dollars from Medicare, Medicaid and other health care programs over the next 10 years. A trillion dollars from Medicare and Medicaid. Food stamps, now known as SNAP, would be cut by more than $200 billion. A third of a trillion would be cut from programs that provide food and housing. Student loan services would be cut by more than $200 billion and the U.S. Postal Service would also suffer. Even the NASA budget would be cut by a half billion dollars. Some of the most severe cuts are in the funding of science and alternative energy. There would be cuts in education, 8 billion dollars. Health and Human Services, 12 billion. Housing, 9 billion. The EPA, a 3 billion dollar cut. The Interior Department, cut by 2 billion. The Labor Department, by 2 billion. The Transportation Department, by 5 billion. And the State Department would face a new 13 billion dollar cut. The budget itself keeps the deficit increase at $1 trillion for the foreseeable future, with a Trump budget total of $4.7 trillion. By next year, this country will be spending more on interest than we spend on Medicare. Interest on the nation's $22 trillion national debt will double over the next four years, and in five years, our debt will surpass the nation's gross domestic product. All of this largely because of Trump's so called tax cut. Trump's budget proposal now is considered dead on arrival at the Democratic controlled House, and yet another Trump budget fight begins. As I said, busy day, busy week. The Senate will vote today on Trump's emergency declaration. The Senate is required by law to take that vote, whether it wants to or not, and Republicans who control the Senate do not want to they were torn between handing their spending powers over to a branch of government not intended to have those powers and giving the guy his emergency order to justify building a wall the prevailing opinion has been that the senate would like the house before it reject trump's border emergency declaration but that trump would veto the capitol hill decision and that the senate would then not be able to muster the votes to override it that was the way most people thought it would play out and it may still or it may not Trump has put tremendous pressure on the lawmakers, virtually threatening them with voter revenge if they don't vote to support his declaration. And Republican senators who still love the Constitution have been offered a soothing ointment, a separate bill that would require future declarations to be renewed every 30 days by Congress, lest they expire. The law would not be retroactive, so not this declaration, of course, but future declarations would have that 30-day sunset clause. And with that, Republican Tom Tillis, who was ready to vote against Trump's declaration, is now changing his position, and his may be a crucial vote. Trump's emergency order would allow him to, among other things, rob the military budget to pay for an expensive and ineffective construction job. Today we find out what happens. A lawsuit recently forced the Trump administration to reunite 2,700 children with their families after the shocking separations of last spring. The Trump government began separating families in July of 2017, however, back when it was denying it was doing such a thing. The separations pulled thousands more children from their families, in addition to the nearly 3,000 of this past spring. Quoting a federal judge, the hallmark of a civilized society is measured by how it treats its people and those within its borders. The judge's ruling. Allowing this class action lawsuit to represent all separated families is yet another blow to Trump's anti-immigration policies. And that wasn't the only Trump immigration policy to fall to defeat this past week. It was another federal judge who struck down the Trump administration's plan to ask about citizenship in the next government census. The question appeared to be aimed at making immigrants afraid of deportation as they fill out the questionnaire for that 2020 census. If they didn't fill it out, they wouldn't be counted in the population numbers that determine congressional districts. The nation's actual population would be severely undercounted. Money would be appropriated to the wrong locales. Federal Judge Richard Seaborg didn't mince words in striking that question from the census. The judge aimed his scorn at Trump Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, saying Ross had acted in bad faith, breaking several laws along the way and violating the Constitution's demand for a representative democracy. The judge went on for 126 pages in his decision, tearing into Ross and the White House advisors who had influenced Ross's actions and who had concealed the real motive for that citizenship question. The ruling came in a lawsuit brought by 18 states that have substantial immigrant populations, and it was yet another in a series of court defeats for Trump and his immigration policies. The presumption is Trump won't always be president, but he has already left us a legacy that will long survive his presidency. He will not soon be forgotten, considering the nearly 90 conservative judges he's gotten confirmed by a Republican Senate. He's installed 53 conservatives to lifetime positions in the district court, 34 in the appeals courts, and two on the U.S. Supreme Court. It's a quiet, conservative revolution that could touch many aspects of life in America, And it's been driven by Trump and by Senate leader Mitch McConnell, who's taken away a home state senator's right to veto a nominee chosen for their state. McConnell's now working to limit debate on judicial nominees. In the past week, McConnell's Senate has confirmed three more Trump judicial nominees. One of them directed the legal effort to dismantle Obamacare. One has ruled against voting rights, marriage equality, and reproductive rights. One had ties to an anti-LGBT group. We won't always have the kinds of judges who've struck down so many of Trump's immigration policies. The judges of Trump's legacy will decide our rights to clean air and water, to health care, as well as rights for women and LGBT Americans. And they will be there for decades, long after Trump is no longer president. In the meantime, the humanitarian crisis that brings people to our border continues to worsen. Immigration and Customs Enforcement says it has quarantined more than 2,000 people in its custody for mumps. Through the previous two years, not a single case of mumps among the immigrants. This past year, over 2,300 people with mumps, chickenpox, or flu, according to Reuters and CNN. A Houston public health official says we should have seen this coming, quoting him, because you're bringing a lot of people and housing them in tight spaces for long periods. The truth has been as unkind to Donald Trump as he and his enablers have been to the truth. There was a $77 million cocaine seizure this week, but the cocaine was not smuggled across the border with a duct taped woman in the trunk, as Trump has claimed. The coke was seized at our port of entry in New Jersey and a wall at the southern border would not have stopped it, as Trump has claimed. It's barely been six weeks since Trump said, and I quote, you don't bring trucks of drugs through the checkpoints. This week they did. This $77 million worth of cocaine was in a truck at a checkpoint nearly 2,000 miles from the Mexican border. Experts, real experts, say more drugs come into this country through those checkpoints than are sneaked across the border. Substantially more. Most of the fentanyl pouring into the U.S. arrives here by mail. And a wall won't stop that either. The Republicans wore pearls. They were debating a perfectly reasonable proposal in the New Hampshire State House that would make it easier in that state to take guns away from potentially dangerous people, About five male Republican lawmakers showed up for the hearing on that proposal wearing strings of pearls around their necks, dangling across their red neckties. It was a way of showing disrespect for the victims of gun violence and the families of those killed by gun violence. It was a snarky display, a way of saying the anti-gun violence activists were there to testify, clutching their pearls, an old expression for being afraid it was a way of calling someone a snowflake. And it is the state of our political discourse in this era of the Trump Republican. Before it nearly broke the internet, it first appeared on the front page of the Miami Herald in full color. It was a selfie of Lee Yang, a Chinese-American who goes by the name Cindy. Cindy Yang owns several purported massage parlors in South Florida, She used to own and founded one such establishment that is now implicated in a human trafficking ring, the same one where New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft was allegedly caught on video receiving and paying for a sex act. And Cindy Yang herself is not currently facing any criminal charges, but leaning into Cindy's selfie was a smiling Trump in color on the front page of the Miami Herald. It was, after all, his Super Bowl watch party and Cindy Yang and her immediate family had donated nearly $60,000 to Trump's presidential campaign, 42 grand for 2016, 16 grand so far for Trump 2020. She has also reportedly connected Trump with some Chinese businessmen who know her as Yang Lee. And Cindy Yang was part of Trump's watch party, the two of them rooting for Bob Kraft's New England Patriots. So there's more to this story than just a delightfully scandalous picture of Trump smiling alongside a massage parlor owner. These days, Cindy Yang, having never voted until 2016, finds herself rubbing elbows with Republicans, including the president, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Florida Senator Rick Scott, Florida Congressman Matt Gaetz, and Sarah Palin, just to name seven. There are also photos of her meeting and greeting people at Trump's private club in Palm Beach, Mar-a-Lago. And Mother Jones is now reporting that massage parlor owner Cindy Yang has been using her highfalutin connections to make money, selling access to Trump at Mar-a-Lago to those Chinese executives. She's been advertising it as a service on her investments website, Quoting the sales pitch, the opportunity to interact with the president, the minister of commerce and other political figures. You pay the price. The online sales pitch is accompanied by all those Mar-a-Lago selfies of Yang and that long line of well-known Republicans from Trump on down. Questions about the relationship between Trump and Yang are being referred to the Trump 2020 campaign, which has yet to comment. In the meantime, journalists and the Federal Election Commission have been doing some checking on their own. Before Cindy Yang got politically fired up about Donald Trump, she had donated also to the presidential campaign of Trump rival Jeb Bush. And that brings us back to the Federal Election Commission, which has been practically dormant for years. This week, we learned that the sleepy FEC has awakened and has something to say about the 2016 Jeb Bush campaign. The Jeb Bush campaign was crushed by various factors, including Donald Trump. But this week, the FEC ordered a super PAC that backed the Jeb campaign to pay a record fine for accepting more than a million dollars in donations from a company owned by Chinese nationals who were in business with Jeb's other brother, Neil Bush, who was working for that super PAC. Foreign donations, again, if I must repeat it, foreign donations to American political campaigns are illegal. And now that super PAC right to rise USA is being fined nearly $400,000. And the American branch of that Chinese owned company is being fined nearly $600,000. The fine totals nearly a million dollars, not far behind the 1.3 million dollar donation, the biggest fine total in any FEC case ever. Individually, these are the biggest fines levied by the FEC since the Supreme Court ruled in the Citizens United case that ruled that companies are people and should not be discouraged from making political donations. In 2019, the election commission awakens. It's alive after all. Here's a scary question in this age of scary questions. Can the Chinese control or stop our nuclear missiles before they ever leave their silos? Huawei is a Chinese wireless phone company that's been in the news here for a few years now because of its ties to Chinese intelligence and the access its technology could provide to Chinese intelligence. Huawei isn't trusted by our federal government or any of the big American wireless companies like AT&T or T-Mobile. But Huawei wireless technology is used by the smaller carriers because Chinese hardware is cheaper. In some remote rural areas, Huawei cell tower technology is the only signal available. And that is the case with the towers near the Malmstrom Air Base in central Montana, where more than 100 intercontinental ballistic missiles armed with nuclear warheads are ready for launch from their underground silos. That is the case with other remote American military bases as well. Security experts tell CNN that of all the dangers Huawei has posed to the U.S., this kind of potential access to our nuclear weapons is the greatest danger of all. The New York Times reports that Facebook is now under criminal investigation for the deals it made to provide other tech companies with users' information. Your information. Those other companies include at least two prominent companies that manufacture devices, including smartphones. But there are 150 such deals with Facebook, including one with Amazon. But other details are sketchy since these charges are filed by a grand jury assembled by the Justice Department's Eastern District of New York. Former employees of Cambridge Analytica have been questioned by that grand jury. Earlier this week, Mark Zuckerberg said he would change the very nature of his social media platform, the end of Facebook as we've known it. Under his vague plan, instead of your posts reaching the world, they would be encrypted and only reach your circle of friends. It's the end of Zuckerberg's dream of a digital town square now evolving into a digital living room. Zuckerberg says once the changes are implemented, Facebook will be all about privacy. But he also says Facebook would merge with its messenger service, Instagram, and WhatsApp. It isn't clear if the change will reduce the amount of propaganda and fake news on Facebook, especially since it's been unable to police those things on WhatsApp. A more limited reach for Facebookers is bad news for small businesses like this one, which need to reach new people in addition to maintaining the audience they already have. There is no timetable yet. But the word from Zuckerberg is that the Facebook we know is going away. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren says if she is elected president, she'll move to break up big tech, Apple, Google, and Facebook. Apple seems to be her prime target for owning both its app store and some of the apps sold in that store. Quoting Warren, it's got to be one or the other. Either they can run the platform or they can play in the store. They don't get to do both at the same time. Senator Warren ran ads on Facebook about her plans to break it up. Facebook pulled the ads for a while and then restored them. The biggest lie being told these days on Fox News is about itself. Sure, posing as a news channel pulls in six million a year, and sure, Fox News is now in its 18th year at the top of cable ratings. And yes, it's as close as one can get to the seat of power, the president of the United States. But Fox News itself is as unbalanced as its coverage and just as unhinged. Its executives and air personalities continue to fall one after the other to sex scandals and lawsuits, resignations and firings, possible criminal investigations, and surprise vacations when someone at Fox says too much. This week, it's bow-tied bombast Tucker Carlson who's on vacation after 10-year-old recordings of him surfaced revealing the real Tucker Carlson. The misogynist, homophobic, white supremacist Tucker Carlson relaxed and cocky on a shock jock DJ show. Carlson worshipped and tried to learn from Tampa Bay's Bubba the Love Sponge. Carlson apparently learned too well Bubba is now off the air, and Tucker Carlson seems headed in that same direction after recording surfaced of him brushing off an accusation of child rape, defending a convicted predator. Just days before the Cohen tapes dropped, Fox host Janine Pirro made a racist comment about a member of Congress saying that because Minnesota's Elon Omar wears a hijab, Omar obeys Sharia law over the laws of the United States. Fox was then forced to publicly rebuke Pirro, adding that it had had a word with her about making such claims. Pirro and Fox star Sean Hannity had both appeared with Trump at a campaign rally late last summer. So yes, there is a potential criminal element at play at Fox with Hannity getting calls from Trump almost daily. Fox elder Lou Dobbs has been part of the president's cabinet meetings via speakerphone. Fox News owner Rupert Murdoch speaks with Trump about once a week. The president and Fox News share a bed, both giving lovers. They have become one. And being in bed with Trump is increasingly risky for anyone in Trump world, including Fox News. As reported here last week, it was a Fox News entertainment reporter who got the whole Stormy Daniels story before the election and Fox killed the story because it would have hurt Trump. Fox and its people may soon find themselves having to answer some very uncomfortable questions. Profits began to wither at Fox last summer when Jeanine Pirro compared Trump's detention camps for migrant children to summer camp. Dozens of advertisers have vanished from Fox News Channel over the winter. AstraZeneca, Sheiks, Career Builder, TD Ameritrade, Just for Men, Outback Steakhouse, and others. The makers of My Pillow are big Trump supporters and they have doubled down on advertising at Fox since the latest foot in mouth scandals of the past week. Editors note: My pillow competitor Hollow Pillows is an advertiser here on the Realm network, not to be confused with the Fox advertiser. Also hanging in with Carlson and Piero and the other deplorables at Fox are Allstate, Mitsubishi, Bayer, Clariton and One a Day. But the pressures on those advertisers is building. Fox is so concerned, it's launched a new ad campaign reminding companies of the customers they can reach with the slogan, America's watching. Indeed, America's watching Fox News, millions of us as viewers, millions more of us as watchdogs. Former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke announced this morning that he's the 14th Democrat with presidential intentions for 2020. He'll be campaigning today in Iowa. But Salon.com's Bob Seska is more
1: concerned with one of the early frontrunners, and he's here to tell us more. Thank you, Buzz. For those of you who've never traveled by subway, the third rail on the track carries around 625 volts, powering the electric engines and making the whole thing go. They used to say Social Security was the metaphorical third rail in American politics. Touch it and die. That might still be the case in some circles, but following a couple decades of the Republican effort to privatize it, threatening to reform, cut or kill Social Security isn't nearly as dangerous as it used to be. And after a particularly harrowing couple of days on Twitter, I've determined that Social Security has been replaced by an all new political third rail, Bernie Sanders. There's a prevailing attitude on social media that's existed since 2016, but which has grown more treacherous with time. The new unspoken rule of Twitter and Facebook is this. Mention Bernie at your own peril. Late Monday evening, I tweeted a random concept, you know, as one usually does on Twitter. The concept is one that surely received a lot of attention last time around and will likely be a thing inside the DNC and elsewhere this time. Would Bernie supporters accept the vice presidential spot on the 2020 ticket should he fail to secure the nomination? And would Bernie haters ever allow such a thing? Specifically, I wrote quote, just throwing this out there. If Bernie isn't the nominee, then he has to be the first choice for the vice presidential nomination and discuss. While it's presented as a statement, I think it's reasonably clear that I wasn't necessarily endorsing the idea. Indeed, those who followed my work since the previous election know I'm not a big fan of Bernie's politics, all due respect despite supporting many of his policy proposals. Again, the underlying gist of my tweet was to see if the Democratic Party could be unified while Bernie is in the mix. The answer is a gigantic no. In fact, I received 1400 replies, many of which were a variation on the word no. There's a metric known as the Twitter ratio. If you receive more replies than likes or tweets, you've done something horribly wrong. My ratio stands at 1400 replies, and 251 likes. I'm not sure if they'll eject or seat me out of my chair or what, but there it is. I grabbed the third rail with both hands, and now I'm feeling more than a little crispy. The no or occasional yes responses didn't bother me. The responses that genuinely infuriated me were the ones in which other users scolded me for asking the question in the first place, as if such a concept were completely out of bounds and I'm a psychopath for going there. Not good. There are two major problems with this Bernie third rail thing. One, it really shouldn't be like this, and two, how the hell can Bernie run for president when anyone who talks about him on social media is electrocuted? First, it really shouldn't be like this. No one understands the divisiveness surrounding Bernie Sanders more than I do. In 2016, knowing the toxicity of the Bernie V Hillary fight And after being in the thick of the Obama v. Hillary fight in 2008, I spent much of the 2016 primaries remaining noncommittal about the nomination, while my podcast partner and colleague at the banter, Chez Pazienza, routinely railed against Bernie and his Bernie bros. But now we've reached an especially poisonous stage in Democratic politics in which the mere mention of Bernie requires a foxhole, a helmet, and a flak jacket to defend against the mortars fired by both the haters and the bros. Comedian Hal Sparks told me, Bob, it's Twitter. To which I replied, Hal, we're grown-ups. I couldn't believe the griping wasn't about the concept itself. But the very idea that the concept was brought up on Twitter, as if I should know better than to ask a political question in the midst of the most politicized platform, arguably in the history of civilization. And yes, we're chronological adults, and we should be able to have a reasonable discussion about the vice presidency and whether the party can be unified. Instead, I'm told the discussion itself should be off the table, period. Yep, we should remain in perpetual denial about the existence of Bernie and whether making him vice president would help bring the party together in the face of the most destructive internal threat to democracy since the Confederacy. Secondly, I don't think Bernie can win while surrounded by this insanity. Insanity, by the way, that he's done little to reel in. If it's impossible to mention Bernie, pro or con on social media without the world collapsing on our heads... How does Bernie run a campaign at a time when social media carries so much weight? Mentioning something positive about Bernie brings the haters in greater force than just about anything I've witnessed in my 10 years on social media. Likewise, mentioning something in opposition to Bernie, well, you might as well delete your account. Along those lines, as this election season approached, I initially decided to go ahead and cover Bernie's candidacy, good, bad, or indifferent. I resolved to simply do what I do, to say what I need to say but because I value my career and because I don't feel like spending whole days at a time beating back the Bernie swarm, I have nearly zero compunction to deal with Bernie either way. I imagine I'm not the only one. Other political writers have expressed a similar disinterest. While sure, the hesitance by political commentators across the entire democratic spectrum won't itself derail Bernie's chances, but it won't help either. In a few short years, Bernie went from obscurity to superstardom to absolute toxicity. Indeed, this commentary in particular will probably reignite the same fury that befell upon me all day Tuesday. Yay for me. A house divided cannot stand, nor will a divided Democratic Party. Things could change, and there might be peace between Bernie Stans and the rest of us. Until then, the only solution... The only way to continue discussing the ups and downs of the emerging Democratic contest is to simply ignore Bernie, the same tactic I've deployed with Russian trolls. Ignoring Bernie runs contrary to everything I've committed to with my work, a commitment to be honest about my positions and to never back away from a fight. But I don't think I'm the only one who's shaking off the chilling effect of grabbing that third rail. For the next 15 months, civility civility on the Democratic side is mandatory. Even when we disagree, Donald Trump has to be defeated. Yet it'll never happen when half of us are routinely trolled by the other half for simply mentioning the name Bernie. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment.
0: Thank you, my friend. Get more of Bob with a subscription at patreon.com slash bobseskashow or tuesdays and thursdays at realmnetwork.com bob will be back with a fresh show this afternoon i join bob on his show every tuesday it's not so much that daylight saving time in itself is bad or good like standard time it's a little of both what's bad is the switching back and forth that messes with our body clocks and our health the time change is literally killing us Traffic accidents, especially involving pedestrians, spike when we switch back to standard time in the fall. It does nothing to save energy, and it also brings an increase in depression cases. Heart attacks spike in the spring when we switch back to daylight time. But crime drops. Criminals apparently don't like staying up that late to commit their crimes, and they're mostly not committing them on dark mornings at 5 a.m. either. Florida Senator Marco Rubio has reintroduced a bill that would put the entire nation on daylight time year-round. That's especially meaningful in Florida and California, which depend on tourist trade and which could use the sunshine on their shores for those who flee there in the winter. But even in Florida, in Tampa, and along the west coast of the state, which are near the border of the central time zone, sunrise on December 22nd would be nearly 8.30 in the morning. Still, the plan to place and keep the entire nation on daylight time is expected to pass both houses of Congress. We may have changed our clocks for the last time. Catholic scandal update. In Melbourne, Australia, Cardinal George Pell was sentenced to six years in prison for molesting two boys after Sunday Mass in 1996. The molestation continued that day in spite of the boys sobbing, and there were other victims served as the Vatican's chief financial officer and was a close advisor to Pope Francis. He could have gotten 50 years for his crimes. At age 77, it'll be at least three and a half years before he's eligible for parole. Meanwhile, in Las Vegas that same day, a former New Jersey priest facing molestation lawsuits was found shot to death in his suburban Vegas home where he ran a porn site that featured young men wrestling. John Capparelli, defrocked for molesting dozens of boys, was found with a single gunshot wound to his neck. Police say they are now investigating a murder. Quoting one of his molestation victims, nobody else is going to be hurt by him, and that's a good thing. A lawsuit just unredacted shows that a major American pharmaceutical company plotted to supply this nation with the opioids at the heart of an addiction crisis and to supply the drugs to treat the addiction it had been feeding. Purdue Pharma called its plan Project Tango, and it reaped more than $4 billion in profits for one of America's richest families, the Sacklers. Purdue Pharma spent 10 years deceiving doctors and patients about the addictive nature of opioids and OxyContin while it was pushing Narcan as a treatment for overdoses. The just-revealed lawsuit was filed in January by the Massachusetts Attorney General's office. It was made public on this past Friday. There were nearly 48,000 opioid overdose deaths in the U.S. in 2017, the most recent year for which we have numbers. Purdue Pharma reportedly steered doctors toward prescribing stronger doses of OxyContin, presumably to increase the addiction rate. It argued that OxyContin was milder than morphine, pretty much just an alternative to Tylenol, the company said. In an internal email, Purdue President Richard Sackler pushed to boost the sales of OxyContin during the crisis. The Massachusetts lawsuit says the email said the way to handle the bad PR about OxyContin was to, quote, blame and stigmatize the people who had become addicted. That's a quote from inside the pharmaceutical company. The lawsuit, quotes Sackler's memo as saying, We have to hammer the abusers in every way possible. They are the problem, he wrote, calling addicts reckless criminals. Purdue Pharma is reportedly worth $13 billion. Boeing 737 MAX 8 and 9 grounded, voting weed in 2020, news from space, and look daddy a dancing camel in the final segment up Next. A programming note, this podcast is now available on Amazon Echo. Just say her name and the words, start Buzz Burbank News to hear the latest episode and its predecessors. And speaking of Amazon, please use that link at buzzburbank.com for all your shopping year round at home, school, and work. Shopping through my Amazon link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. Just go to buzzburbank.com and click on the Amazon logo. You'll land on your usual Amazon page, which you can then bookmark to replace your old shopping bookmark. Now, once you've done that, I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make, so it really helps power this free weekly report. On your desktop browser, that Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone app, it's just under the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal Donate button, which is right there. Thank you for all those things and for spreading the word about this effort. Somebody with measles passed through Los Angeles International Airport on Thursday, February 21st. Everyone else who passed through LAX Terminal B or Delta Terminal 3 that day should be on watch for fever, cold symptoms, and a rash for the next three weeks or so. Even as a measles outbreak spreads in the U.S., at least 20 states are considering new anti-vaccination bills. In Washington, D.C., the anti-vax movement behind these bills is being called a growing public health threat. There are now about 230 measles cases in at least a dozen states, and in at least 20 states, there are now bills to give parents more ways to opt their kids out of the shots, even when there's no medical need to do so. There are also bills that would force doctors to talk about any risks associated with the MMR vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella. The vaccines actually prevent as many as 3 million deaths each year. The anti vax movement is based on a distrust of government and pharmaceutical companies and the false rumor that the MMR vaccine causes autism. It does not. Anti vaxxers are also worried about their individual rights and religious freedoms. The anti vax movement had just about sputtered out by 2013, but has surged again to its highest level ever by last year. The current surge in proposed legislation is a pushback for the bad PR the anti-vax movement's been getting lately. 20 bills do not mean the laws of those 20 states will change. Most of those bills thankfully are not expected to pass. Most of those bills. In Europe, meanwhile, unvaccinated children are being banned from schools as the measles spread there as well. A six-year-old Oregon boy has become sort of a reverse poster child for vaccinations. Days after getting a barnyard cut on his forehead, the boy's jaw began to lock up. He was having trouble breathing and muscle spasms. Lockjaw is the name once given to a disease doctors now know as tetanus. This six-year-old is the first pediatric case of tetanus in Oregon in 30 years. His parents didn't get him vaccinated against tetanus, and he had contracted it through that open wound in his head. It put their kid in a darkened hospital room for two straight months, and he wore earplugs because light and sound aggravated his convulsions. The boy spent a month on a ventilator as well. The hospital bill? More than $800,000. And his parents nearly lost the boy. They certainly watched him suffer. One of the doctors who saved him said it was hard to watch the boy's suffering and that she never wants to see that again. But the parents are standing their ground. They did not get the boy vaccinated to protect him from future tetanus infections, and they declined the other vaccinations that were offered as well. And there is no vaccine for stupid. And while Congress looks for ways to lower prescription prices, some companies are already on the case. Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase are working on ways to lower healthcare costs. And United Healthcare this week became the first medical insurance company to stop accepting rebates from drug companies, giving the money instead directly to the patients. Pfizer says it found that insurance companies were not passing along the savings to the consumer, so United Healthcare is cutting itself out as a middleman. The company says the customer discounts start in January 2020, saving an average of $130 per prescription. Congressional Democrats are also working to repair the damage done to Obamacare by Trump and his congressional Republicans. The number of uninsured Americans during the Trump administration has jumped by 3% since the sabotage of the Affordable Care Act. The Iowa Supreme Court this week ruled that transgender people in that state may use Medicaid to pay for their transition treatment, assuming they qualify for Medicaid. Iowa law had classified transition treatments as cosmetic surgery, which is not covered by Medicaid. The Iowa Civil Rights Act of 2007 added gender identity to the state's list of protected people. New Mexico appears close to becoming the 11th state to legalize recreational marijuana. New Mexicans would be able to possess up to an ounce if they have their receipt with them, but tokers would not be allowed to grow their own. The pot would be sold at state-run stores and in certain private businesses if there is no state-run store in a given area. The 2020 election could bring more than just a new president and a new Senate. It could also bring legalized marijuana nationwide. Nearly every Democrat in the presidential primary race supports it to some degree, as does the one Republican so far challenging Trump for that party's nomination even with everything else in play, weed is an issue in the next election. 62% of voters favor it, including nearly half of all Republicans. Ten states and the District of Columbia have already legalized recreational marijuana over the past eight years. But at the national level, pot is still a Schedule I drug, same as heroin and LSD. As far as the federal government's concerned, marijuana has no medical use and carries a, quote, high potential for abuse. One presidential hopeful, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, has reintroduced a bill to legalize pot across the country. The bill would remove weed from that list of controlled substances, clear the court records for marijuana offenses, and even punish states for not legalizing it by withholding their federal funding. The bill is co-sponsored by Booker's fellow Democratic hopefuls, including Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, and Bernie Sanders. And although not a co-sponsor, Amy Klobuchar says she supports it too. A notable exception is Joe Biden, who says pot is a gateway drug and that legalizing it would be a mistake. But there are even rumblings among Republicans that one way to head off the Democrats' weed advantage at the polls is for Trump to move to legalize it first. Honda is recalling over a million cars for defective airbags. They are the same Hondas that were repaired in a previous recall, apparently, repaired with defective replacement parts. Once again, the recall involves Acuras, Accords, Civics, CRVs, and others. Honda has been affected more than any other car maker by the airbags from the Takata Corporation. Its side airbags were recalled just two months ago. That recall, involving nearly three million vehicles, also touched Toyota, Ford, Fiat, and Chrysler. Takata has now filed for bankruptcy under the weight of countless lawsuits in the midst of the biggest recall in automotive history. The original defective airbags killed nearly two dozen people and injured hundreds of others. Now, it's back to the shop again to be safe. See dealer for details. On orders from Trump, the Boeing 737 MAX 8s and MAX 9s have been grounded. The decision was slow in coming and is still controversial because the grounding came before investigators had a chance to look at the black boxes from the latest deadly crash. More than two-thirds of the world's Boeing 737 MAX 8 jetliners had already been grounded after two apparently similar and equally deadly crashes in five months. More than 40 nations on every major continent had banned the planes, including China, Australia and the European Union, but until yesterday evening, not the United States. It appeared that a decision to ground the planes here in the U.S. would have to come from the FAA, which only has an acting administrator, since Trump hasn't bothered to nominate one after two years in office. The decision could have also come from Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, a Trump nominee who's also married to Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell. Neither Chao nor the acting FAA director moved to ground the planes that had already been banned from the airspace over Britain and other countries. On Tuesday morning, Boeing CEO was on the phone with Trump, pitching that he should keep the 737 MAX 8s flying. So they kept flying for two more days. American and Southwest Airlines were still flying them, even though dozens of other airlines around the world had stopped for now. Boeing is now rushing to install revamped software to overcome the glitch that appears to be causing these crashes, but the new software won't be available until next month. It might have been ready in time to prevent the most recent crash, which killed 157 people. Unfortunately, the rollout of that software was delayed five weeks by the Trump government shutdown and those people died. At least 11 pilots have reported to the FAA the kind of trouble that has apparently now killed some 350 people. Anonymous pilot chat rooms also have reports of this same trouble. American and Southwest claim they've gotten no reports from pilots about this. Some 737 pilots say the real problem is the MAX 8's flight manual, one calling it inadequate and almost criminally insufficient, adding, I'm left to wonder what else don't I know? And although the planes were grounded around the world, Boeing 737 MAX 8s were still flying in the U.S. because they might be safe. Until Trump finally intervened yesterday afternoon. Today, more than 1,100 flights are canceled across the U.S., but more because of a big and powerful late winter storm that's sweeping the country than from the grounding of those 737s. The timing of the storm may have been fortunate in that way. It's been a tough week for Boeing, but a week of successes for Boeing's space rival, SpaceX. And it was a week of success for American space exploration. With no one but a condition sensing dummy on board, a SpaceX rocket lifted a SpaceX capsule into orbit. The money saving, reusable rocket retro rocketed its way gently onto the deck of a ship that was there to retrieve it, and the SpaceX capsule docked with the International Space Station perfectly and automatically, all of this as we've grown accustomed to seeing it in science fiction TV shows and movies. Real astronauts boarded the SpaceX capsule for a bit and then the capsule detached from the space station and drifted to the surface of the Atlantic Ocean safe and sound. SpaceX is now ready for its first manned flight later this year. It's now Boeing's job to catch up, if it can, aiming for its own unmanned launch next month and its first manned launch in August. So far, Boeing, the predicted favorite in this commercial space race, has been paid more money by NASA than SpaceX has, but SpaceX was the first to prove itself with a week of remarkable successes. NASA benefits from this commercial involvement, and NASA has plans of its own. This week, it unveiled its plan to return astronauts to the moon next year. Maybe even this year. In fact, NASA hopes to cover the entire surface of the moon with exploration by 2028, with special focus on the moon's north and south poles, which are laden with ice a NASA administrator calls valuable water. The missions involving lunar landers, robots, and astronauts to explore and conduct tests in all regions of the moon. NASA says it'll be excellent training for its next stop, Mars. More down to Earth, NASA says its focus will also be on monitoring the environment of this planet. For every student admitted through fraud, an honest, genuinely talented student was rejected. Those are the words of the U.S. attorney for Massachusetts, Andrew Lelling. He was announcing the breakup of the biggest college admission scam ever prosecuted in a second example of white privilege in one week. The story boils down to this. Rich people paid bribes and paid cheaters to get their less deserving kids into college instead of more deserving students. Some of the parents paid as much as $6.5 million to do this. Bribes were accepted by coaches at Yale, Stanford, USC, Wake Forest, and Georgetown. Among the rich parents nailed, actresses Felicity Huffman of Desperate Housewives and Lori Loughlin of Fuller House. Huffman paid 15 grand to a fake charity to help her daughter cheat on the SATs. In some cases, that fake charity would even Photoshop athletic photos to put the rich kid's face in the picture in addition to helping students score big on college entrance exams. Lori Laughlin and her husband did the same and paid bribes to get their daughters named as recruits on the University of Southern California crew team, a sport in which they never even participated. Laughlin and her husband both face criminal charges. Felicity Huffman's husband, William H. Macy, was mentioned in the indictment, but he himself was not charged. College coaches are already being fired for their parts in the scam. For the most part, no decision yet on the unqualified rich kids at those colleges, nor about the qualified students they displaced, nor about those who benefited from the scam but have already graduated. Schools are working on this already. The world champion U.S. women's soccer team is suing the U.S. Soccer Federation for gender discrimination. While the men's team continues its streak of not winning medals, the women's team has been on top for four straight years. They're required to play more games than the men, but for less money. Former Empire actor Jesse Smollett this week was indicted on 16 felony counts stemming from a false report and lies to police about a hate crime that never occurred. The now unemployed actor is out on a $100,000 bail awaiting trial. It was 1964 when a simple but powerful drum beat kicked off the Ronettes hit, Be My Baby. The drummer on that analog on vinyl recording was Hal Blaine, who went on to pound the skins for the Beach Boys, Elvis, and Sinatra. Hal Blaine was the founder of the revered Wrecking Crew, a studio band that played the hits with the artists who got the credit. Blaine's wrecking crew backed the birds: Roy Orbison, Neil Diamond, the Carpenters, Sam Cooke, the Fifth Dimension, Captain and Tennille, Herb Alpert, the Mamas and Papas, and Simon and Garfunkel, to name a few. That's Hal Blaine, playing drums on Strangers in the Night, Return to Sender, Good Vibrations, Mr. Tambourine Man, A Taste of Honey, California Dreaming, and Streisand's The Way We Were, to name a few. That's Hal and the band, playing the opening theme to TV's The Brady Bunch. His passing this week at age 90 brought shout-outs from the Rolling Stones' Charlie Watts and Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. And teen idol Jan Michael Vincent died of a heart attack last month at the age of 73. We just learned of it this week. Vincent is best known for his role as a pilot on TV's Airwolf in the 1980s, but he also played a stuntman in Burt Reynolds' Hooper. He showed off his abs in the surfer film Big Wednesday with Gary Busey. Vincent's personal life, plagued by substance abuse, was tragic. A drunk driving accident in 1997 led to a conviction, a broken neck, and mandatory rehab. He was acquitted of a domestic violence charge in 1996. Before that, Vincent had been charged in multiple barroom brawls, getting probation for one of them. May Jan Michael Vincent finally rest in peace. Brie Larson as Captain Marvel crushed it at the ticket window this week as the top movie it raked in 153 million dollars in ticket sales in the U.S. and Canada. It is the biggest movie opening ever for a female lead opening with nearly a half billion dollars worldwide so far. The fast track to your theater seat is through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. And then there was one. The world will soon be down to just one blockbuster video store. It's in Bend, Oregon. The only other blockbuster in Australia is closing at the end of this month. In the U.S., the last stores outside of Oregon were in Alaska, but they closed in July. There were once 9,000 blockbuster stores in the U.S. In 1989, a new blockbuster was opening every 17 hours. By the late 2000s, they were closing at nearly that same rate. Netflix and Redbox did them in. For the next two weeks, while supplies last, everything must go at the Blockbuster in Perth, Australia, including its outdated IBM computer terminals. And then there was one. Philadelphia has just become the first city in the U.S. to ban stores that refuse to take cash. In this electronic age, an increasing number of retailers have stopped taking cash, accepting only plastic, credit, and debit cards that discriminates against the poor and anyone who doesn't do plastic. Come July, that won't be allowed in the city of brotherly love. Other cities are expected to follow suit. From our how dumb is this department, the Mississippi Public Safety Department was fined 200 bucks by another agency of the Mississippi state government, and then proceeded to spend $18,000 fighting that $200 fine from the state's ethics commission. This week, headed into Los Angeles, a Tesla driver was caught on video doing 75 miles an hour on an expressway. That driver was asleep at the wheel as the car drove by itself at 75. The heart-stopping sight was captured on video by the passenger of an adjacent car. Quoting her, he was asleep pretty much the whole time. I saw him open his eyes once to look around, but he quickly dozed back to sleep. Let's be careful out there. A new survey shows that 7 out of 10 Americans don't trust self-driving cars. 71% of us don't trust them. That number is up from the last survey by about 8 points. It should be noted that people didn't trust electricity when it was first wired into homes. The highway spill of the week hails from West Covina, California, when a truck overturned on a street near the 10, losing its load of beer. Boxes of canned beer, and some of the cans that escaped, were strewn across Garvey Avenue. While cleanup crews labored to pick up the beer, drivers were told to expect delays. I would think so. And that brings us to the Ohio man who gave up all food and drink for Lent, except for beer. Dell Hall of Dayton, Ohio, is going 46 days, taking in nothing but beer. You can follow Dell's adventures on YouTube. He says he's actually losing weight on his beer-only diet. He says he was inspired by the monks of the 1600s, who considered beer liquid bread and sustained themselves with it through Lent as they abstained from all other food and drink. Sure, Dell. let's go with that story. It really can pay to read the fine print. It happened for a high school teacher in Florida who read the fine print on a travel insurance policy she'd recently purchased and found the instructions for a secret contest. Donalyn Andrews found in that fine print the promise of $10,000 for the first person to send an email saying they had read about it in the contract. She found that fine print just 23 hours after the contest began. Ms. Andrews says she had put in for retirement just a week before winning the insurance contest. She plans to spend this found money on a dream of celebrating her 35th wedding anniversary with her husband in Scotland because she read the fine print. A golfer in British Columbia this week got his first hole in one, but not really. It was a decent shot, the ball landing on the green not far from the hole when suddenly the eagle had landed an eagle landed on the green and started toying with the ball until it fell into the hole. The golfer had scored a hole in one and an eagle, but neither in the usual sense. From the home office in Florida, a man headed to church with his family, whipped out his cell phone camera to get video of something none of them expected to see on their way to church, a camel dancing in the back of a bus. It was 11 a.m. when this man, an Orlando TV anchor, heard his kids shouting about a dancing camel. It's like doing the Carlton, like dancing in the back of the school bus with its head stuck out, he said. Quoting anchor Matt Austin, he seemed really happy back there. Thank you, Florida. And finally, a Nebraska state trooper was a little miffed to see a snow-covered car parked in the middle of a road. He was then befuddled when he learned that this car wasn't a car at all. It was made entirely of snow. Sculpted, really, in detail. The sculptor did a really good job. Made it look just like a Ford Mustang, in detail. Even left a fake parking ticket on the windshield. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting this free news at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank News and Comment.